Let's continue our worship by looking at a narrative of scripture, by looking at a psalm, which is really the definition of the essence of, of worship. It's Psalms 29. Yeah, three of you are so excited you can't hardly stand it. Psalms 29. Psalms 29 is really, let me just say this. This, as you're turning there, just look at your neighbor and announce to them the title of this series that we've been in, Lyrics and Lines. And I want you to stay with me upstairs. This, this message is very, very fluid. To, to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> Um, it, it's been like one of those messages that, that it's, I felt like I'm all over the place with it. It's like it's got seven or eight different drafts, and you ball one up, and you throw it away, and you're like, okay, God, what are you doing here? And then yesterday, I'm trying to spend time in it, and, and my mother had this emergency. You know, my mother's uh, got advanced stages Parkinson's, and so we had to rush her to the hospitals, very serious situations, and, and she's in the hospital now with an infection, certainly need your prayer, but but I was like, oh, my Lord, I just didn't have the time that I needed to really do what I felt like I needed to do. And then I, anyway, how many of you know that God is a sovereign God and he has a direction? So um, here we are in a series, which is, it's so unique as to how God works. We were, we're going to close this series down today, but we'll probably revisit this series sometime later this year, maybe next year. Um, in fact, we were going to close down this series last week, but I really felt in my spirit that we needed an encore. <laughs> Is that okay? So today I'm going to take you to this narrative of Scripture in Psalms chapter 29. I'm going to read it, and then I'm hoping to be able to give it some direction. But here's what I want to do before you are seated. I just want to read Psalms 29 using the message translation. I think the message translation captures the essence of, of, of the beauty of this psalm that King David wrote. And here's what he writes. He says in verse 1, Bravo, God, bravo. Gods and all angels shout encore. In awe before the glory, in awe before God's visible power, stand at attention. Dress your best to honor him. God thunders across the waters, brilliant his voice and his face, streaming brightness. God across the floodwaters, God's thunder, God's thunder, God's thunder. Tempanic, God's thunder, symphonic, God's thunder smashes cedars, God topples the northern cedars, the mountain ranges skip like spring colts, the high ridges jump like wild kid goats, and God's thunder spits fire, God's thunder, the wilderness quakes, he makes the desert of Kadesh shake, God's thunder sets the oak trees dancing, a wild dance whirling, the pelting rain strips their branches, we fall to our knees and we call out glory. Hold on a second. It's really verse 1 where we receive our title today. Bravo, God, bravo. Gods and all angels shout encore. Somebody look at your neighbor and say encore. Encore means to 
do again, to repeat, to do over, more of the same thing. Can anybody in this place for a moment think about the splendor of God and how he's shown up in your life and can you give him an encore kind of praise? Does anyone in this place, have you ever had the sovereignty of God show up in the form of the miraculous in your life? Can you give him an encore kind of praise? Has God reached down into the storm of your life and rescued you? Can you do what King David said and give him an encore kind of praise? Has anyone ever been saved? Has God saved you, healed you, delivered you, rescued you? Then somebody give God an encore kind of praise because could it be our willingness to give God an encore praise opens up heaven to do an encore performance? Lord have mercy. Y'all going to help me preach today? Oh, somebody, y'all just be seated. Be seated if you can. But, but don't let your backside become too attached to that seat today. Let me take a moment to give to you some clarity. Because this is one of the most poetic psalms, one of the most uniquely written psalms that David articulates. David is actually sitting on top of a mountain, pinning this psalm writing a song, if you will, watching a, a, a storm that comes through the mountains of Lebanon and goes down into the expanse of Israel, leaving in its wake toppled trees, snapped limbs, thunder and lightning everywhere. And as David is sitting on top of the mountain writing this psalm and the beauty of what he sees, he begins to see the symbolism in life. And he not only sees the power of the storm, but he sees the power of the Most High God and how beautiful it is in the midst of the storm. I need you to grab this seven times. Can I teach for a minute? Seven times between verses three and nine, David uses the phrase, the voice of the Lord. Seven times. He cries out the voice of the Lord. He uses the voice of the Lord even to describe the sound of thunder. It is not that David has adopted some pantheistic form of God being nature. No, what David is saying to us is that God's voice is the predominant feature in any storm that we ever face. What David is trying to say to us in the midst of all of his reflection is that there has been times when he was going through the storms of life and as he sits on top of the mountain looking at the storm, he realizes that God prevails over the storm. It reminds me of the young theologian who walked up on an old man one day reading his Bible and heard the old preacher say one time when he was telling this story that the young theologian looked at him and said, what are you reading? The old man looked at him and said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. The young theologian scoffed and said, but do you even understand what you are reading? The old man said, certainly I do. The young theologian said, well, that baffles me because some of the greatest minds have not been able to crack the complexities of the book of Revelation. So if you understand it, then tell me what it means. What does it mean? And the old man looked up at him and said, it means that Jesus will win in the end. 
That is what Psalms chapter 29 is saying. That's what David is articulating. Whether your storm is financial, whether your storm is emotional, whether your storm is physical, whether your storm is it's 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 personal whether your storm is is spiritual whether your storm is occupational whether your storm is it's fear or whether your storm is insecurity that no matter how loud the thunder may be no matter how often the lightning may pop and crack all around you that the voice of the lord is louder that the voice of the lord is more powerful that jesus christ is lord over the storm and that's why david said encore encore because of who he is encore because of what God does encore because he is Jehovah Jireh my provider encore because everything that has been made has been made through him and nothing that has been made has been made without him encore because David put victory in his mouth even though he was watching the storm can somebody cry out encore But if we were transparent this morning, we would say that even though we feel like God is going to win, the question that we really has, have is, is God going to win in my situation? More exact, am I going to win in my situation? So we go through this storm in life. We go through this difficulty. Wanting to believe that God is a God who prevails. Wanting to be able to focus our minds upon loving God with all of our heart and our strength. But the truth is the storm attacks us in our minds. It causes our focus to be divided and therefore, we're focused more on the storm than we are the power of Jesus Christ in the midst of it. David understood that because David had been there. So when he's writing this psalm, he gives the conclusion to the psalm in verses 10 and 11, and he answers that very concern. In fact, it becomes the inspiration for us today because verses 10 and 11 says says this it says above the floodwaters is god's throne from which his power flows from which he rules the world god makes his people strong god gives his people peace two things that david is doing right here he's revealing to us a promise actually two promises that he has lived by as he's gone through the storm as he's watching this physical thunderstorm he remembers something that god has done in his life he's revealing two promises number one that god will give you the strength to outlast the storm and number two god will give you peace during the storm David, again, remember, he's reflecting upon his own life as he's watching this incredible storm unfold, and it's knocking trees down. It's, it's going down over Israel and causing so much, so much havoc. And David begins to realize the strength and the peace that God has given him, but then his mind turns from him as an individual to the corporate body of Christ. 
Think about the context in which this psalm is written. This psalm is a song in which people are to worship to, both the individual and the corporate body of Christ. In fact, David does something in verse 9. Watch this. In verse 9, let me show you something. God's thunder sets the oak trees dancing. A wild dance whirling, the pelting rain strip their branches. We fall. Everybody say we. Doesn't say I. It says we fall to our knees and we call out glory. In the original manuscript, David writes that in the temple, in the church, we cry out glory. David moves his attention from himself to the corporate body. He's talking about the togetherness of the body of Christ, the synergy. Something happens when the body of Christ comes together. The strength of the Lord and the peace of the Lord comes upon us. Let me give you a little side note. The enemy's strategy is to separate you, if you will. The enemy's strategy is to disconnect you from the body of Christ so that he can get you to focus on the storm. He wants to isolate you in the storm. He uses the storm in order to isolate you. And there is devastation in isolation. What the enemy will do, hang on, somebody needs to hear this. What the enemy will do is he will isolate you in the storm so that you'll begin to focus on the storm. And once you begin to focus on the storm, at that moment in time, he'll begin to, he'll begin to bombard your spirit with loneliness. Because you'll feel like you're all alone in the storm and that no one likes you and no one cares about you and you're in this storm all by yourself. And the reason why he'll do that is so that you will feel all alone and then you will no longer focus on the storm, but you'll focus on the people that you feel like are not with you and not for you. And now you'll have anger towards them and you'll want to fight them and therefore the enemy can take away from you and rob you of the very spoken word that God has placed over your life and the inheritance that you will receive with the saints. Why? Because if he can get you to focus on fighting with the saints, then he can get you to stop focusing on the mission of God. And if he gets you to stop focusing on the mission of God, then you are no threat to the kingdom of darkness. So we walk up into church as the body of Christ and we want to have a fight with somebody. What she thinks she's wearing? Who she thinks she is. I don't understand this. Why in the world are we always singing the same song? And that last song we seem to sing for 20 minutes. Why does the preacher not preach from the King James Version? Doesn't he understand that is the very voice of God? As if Jesus spoke in the old English. Well, I don't just, I'm not sure the Holy Spirit showed up today. We have our personal opinion as to how the Holy Spirit will reveal himself. And because he didn't show up the way we thought he should show up according to our own personal opinion, we're missing the very truth that the Holy Spirit is around us. Don't start me to preaching, y'all. Let, let, me, let me share something with you about church growth for a minute. And some of these numbers may be a little skewed. I'm strictly going by memory, so just hang here with me for a minute. I've read articles over the last several months 
about church growth that has been very depressing. It, it, it makes you not even really want to do church anymore. In fact, one of the articles said, stop going to church. In 1974, the national average of churchgoers was 46%. 46% of all people who lived in America in 1974 went to church on a consistent basis. In the 80s, it dropped. In the 90s, it dropped into the 20 percentile. In the 2000s, where we are now, it's 12%. Go to church on a consistent basis. However, there's a problem. The way they define consistency, if 12% doesn't scare you, this really will. The way they define consistency in 1974 was three out of four Sundays you were in church. Consistency in 2018 is one out of every eight Sundays you were in church. The article went on to say that millennials just don't feel like they need church. And that this culture is going to be very tough to reach. And, and if you're a millennial, that, that's, aren't you just sick of how people characterize you? <laughs> she said, yes, I am. She, she's just, just, claim, she just claiming she's a millennial. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and so what ends up happening is they say that because with our smartphones, we have podcasts and we can watch sermons on Tuesday that people have this thought process that, hey, I watched a sermon on Tuesday, so I really don't need to go to church on Sunday. Mm. So the church is on decline. 5,000 plus churches are closing their doors every week. A pastor, a friend of mine, through another friend, recently left the ministry. He's got a church of like two or three hundred. He left the ministry because he felt like he, he just couldn't succeed because his church just kind of stayed at two or three hundred for, for, for years. And, 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 you know, he just felt like a failure because then it went to 180 and then it went to 170 and then it went to 160. And, you know, people tried to say, hey, man, that's what's happening to churches all across America. You know, that's it, it, it's, you know, we've got to figure out how to reach the people in today's culture. You know, and they say, these articles said that church culture today, the people in culture today, you know, they have defined community in a different way than they did 30 or 40 years ago. Today, community is your social media. You got thousands of likes. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make, I, I hope uh, that you're understanding this. The point that I am trying to make is that really, we don't have time to to, to argue about our differences. The body of Christ does not have time to, to argue amongst themselves. The body of Christ does not have time to focus on our differences. The body of Christ must lay down our differences. The body of Christ must shout glory unto God. The body of Christ needs to stop working and fighting against the people that God has called us to fight with. So regardless of where you are from, whether you are black, white, green, yellow, gold, you ought to grab hands hand in hand the person that you call a Christ follower who is your friend and let's march together and do what God has called us to do because when we have community all of a sudden the storm will begin to dissipate. Why? Because we are accomplishing the common goal that God gave to us.
God created the church for community. Why? Because you're going to need more than someone's Facebook post to help you when the storm comes. And so David writes Psalms chapter 29, clearly pointing us to worship God, to call upon God. Because if we focus upon the storm and the elements of the storm and the effects of the storm, we'll be destroyed in the storm. But if we focus upon the voice that is above the storm, the voice that can turn chaos into creation, like in Matthew chapter 14, you remember the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000? He feeds the 5,000 with, he takes this boy's lunchbox. It's got two fish in it, two tilapia. And five loaves of Hawaiian bread. Don't y'all love that stuff? And he, he feeds like 5,000 men plus the women and children that are there, probably fifteen to 20,000 people. And then after he feeds them, he tells the disciples, you get in the boat and go to the other side. The problem is Jesus didn't get in the boat with them. He went up on the mountain to pray, and they began to row the boat going to the other side. And you know, just in human nature, they're rowing the boat, and they're like, man, did you see? Did you see what Jesus did? Whoa, good Lord have mercy. Did you see it? He fed all those people. Not only that, but there were like baskets full, left over 12, and they're in the boat with them as they're rowing across to the other side, and you know they're munching on the leftovers. And they're like, man, this stuff is seasoned just right. Just rowing the boat. Man, God is so good. More of God. More of Jesus. I want to see more. I, I want to see more. And then all of a sudden, thunder and lightning. And the conversation begins to shift. You know it does. It's no longer, did you see what Jesus did? It's, it, it's where is Jesus at? It's no longer a conversation about faith. It's a conversation about fear. It's no longer, did you see what Jesus did? It's now, why did Jesus put us in this boat but not get in the boat with us? Where is Jesus at at this moment when we're in the hell of our lives? Why is he not here? And really, this story in Matthew 14 is the epitome of, of, of Psalms chapter 29, which tells us this, that no matter how great your storm is, it pales in comparison to how great God is in your storm. No matter how great the storm is in your life, but, but you know that we're a lot like the disciples. Our, our, our nature is, is the same. I mean, the, they're, they're rowing and everything's good. Man, this is great. Did you see what Jesus did? I cannot believe it. He took those two little fish and they, he, he multiplied them and fed all of those people. I just can't believe it. And they're like, I just want more of Jesus. More of Jesus. Give me more of Jesus. What do you think about it, Peter? Peter said that food was good. That food was incredible. I'm telling you, he seasoned that food just right. In fact, give me another piece of that. What'd you think about it, Thomas? Well, you see what had happened was I needed to see it just one more time, just one more time in order for me to believe it. But I just want to hang out with more of Jesus, more of Jesus. Oh, did y'all hear that? Lightning popping and cracking everywhere, thunder. No, no, no more. No more of this. No, where is Jesus? It's human nature. 
David is realizing that when he's on top of the mountain looking at the storm, reflecting on his own life, seeing the symbolism. It's human nature. In fact, the people of Israel, think about it. The people of Israel, God freed them from 400 years of slavery, 400 years of, uh, 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 of, uh, of tyranny, 400 years of bondage, 400 years of difficulty to give them the promise. And, and the Pharaoh lets the people go. And then the Pharaoh changes his mind and begins to chase the people of Israel. And as he's chasing the people of Israel, they get to the Red Sea. And now they don't know what to do. And they become very angry because now they feel like they're going to die. But then all of a sudden, God parts the Red Sea. And the people of Israel walk across on dry ground. And they walk into the promise that God is going to give to them. And then the Red Sea closes back over and envelops all of the Egyptians and kills every last one of them. And then the people of Israel begin to have this huge celebration, a week-long celebration where they're writing songs and praising God for how good he is. But then a week later, the next storm blows up. It's a storm called thirstiness. And then they begin to change. And they're like, Moses, where is your God now? And then they're like allowing the storm to put false statements in their mouths when they say it would have been better for us to die over in Egypt than for us to die right here. The very thing that they had been asking to be freed from, now they're free from, and now they want to go back to the very bondage that they once were in. You know they don't want to go back. It's just a matter of where they're at right here. So the disciples have fear. In Matthew 14, the Bible says that they are afraid. And you know what fear is? This is all that fear is. It, it's very simple. Fear is when your experience doesn't meet up to your expectation. That's what fear is. When the lightning is a little longer and the storm is a little longer and the thunder is a little louder, are you crying out glory to God or are you crying something else? Because the disciples began to cry out. And when they began to cry out about the storm, about their problem, about their difficulty, along comes Christ. What they needed to understand was that even though the storm was powerful, that their answer was at hand and he is more powerful than the storm that they were going through. It's about to get good. So the disciples are desperate. How many of you know in your desperation you'll do some things that you wouldn't normally do? You with me? And so Peter gets out of the boat in the storm and begins to walk towards Jesus in the storm on the water. And he's walking. He's cruising along. I mean, he's going. He's, I mean, everything's good. He's probably, you know, dancing doing the Drake challenge or something. I mean, he's doing something. It's a challenge every week. It's tough to keep up with all of it. And so, but then all of a sudden he hears, and the Bible says that he, out of fear, when he looked at the wind and the waves, he began to sink. And you know what? Theologians and preachers, man, they give Peter such a hard time. But I think there's a greater moral to the story because there were 11 other people in the boat who were not willing to get out of the boat and walk towards Jesus. Verse 30, Matthew chapter 14, verse 30 says something though. It says this, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. But he cried out. What did he cry out? <laughs> Lord, save me. 
Peter understood that even though the wind and the waves were greater than him, they were not greater than the Most High God. So he cried out, Lord, save me. I don't know how to navigate this, but I know you'll make a way where there seems to be no way because, God, I know you'll give me strength and peace. So he cried out, encore. You just did a miracle, and I know you're about to do another miracle. Encore. I don't have time to preach this whole passage of Scripture. But there are two verses that I need you to pay close attention to. Verses 32 and 33. Watch this. It says, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying truly you are the son of god they were in a they were in in a storm they had only gone halfway across this this body of water they could not go any further because the storm was about to kill them now they realize that he is the lord over the storm listen they are beginning to worship him it's it's encore it's encore we don't have to be afraid we don't have to fight we don't have to be scared all we have to do is call upon the name that is above every other name the name that is above the storm because the storm will come and so will jesus the storm will pass you by but jesus never will because he comes to give you strength he comes to give you peace he comes to give you hope he comes to give you everything that you need to realize he is the lord over the storm lord have mercy can I can I take just another minute can I do this just a side note but an, a side note that's worthy of noting 18 times 18 times let me say that again 18 times David references Yahweh in 11 verses 18 times 18 times he references Yahweh he uses the name Yahweh he doesn't reference the storm 18 times he references the name Yahweh 18 times You see, Yahweh, according to the Jewish people, the Hebrew people who would have read this, then Yahweh has, it's, that name is so deep that many times they wouldn't even pronounce it. It actually stood for, in some cases, the very breath of God. breath in let a breath out there is a natural inclination in the human body to cry out to the most high God and David in a profound way mentions 18 times in 11 verses. 
hopes in a very deep way that we would realize that the very breath of God is in us. And if the breath of God is in us, that makes us children of God. And if we're children of God, that gives us access to the power of God. And therefore, we do not have to be afraid. We don't have to fight. We don't have to walk in fear because our stability comes in Him. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is our strength. Oh, my Lord, have mercy. On Christ, the solid rock, I'm found all other ground is sinking sand. Good Lord, have mercy. Are you, are you grabbing this? Because... Encore him, more of him, more of his hope, encore, more of his help, encore, more of his provision, encore, more of his grace, encore, more of his strength, encore, more of him, encore, more of who he is, encore, because he is Yahweh, he'll make the way where there seems to be no way. Can somebody give God an encore praise? this